This is Bloomberg Business Week. I'm Carol Masser. And I'm Jason Kelly. We're here every day bringing you the latest news from the world of business and finance. Plus technology, politics, economics, all harnessing the power of Bloomberg Business Week reporters and editors. Not to mention our 2,700 journalists and analysts in more than 120 countries. You can download Bloomberg Business Week on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show weekdays at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio. Well, yes, indeed. We have heard several times from Federal Reserve Chairman Jay Powell about taking it easy when it comes to monetary policy and the potential for cutting interest rates. So that is certainly our backdrop for the markets this week. We also want to mention another official, actually from the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, that President Thomas Barkin, catching up with our Michael McKee and giving his assessment of the economy as well. Listen up. The first quarter was fine, but the indicators we see for the second quarter are less strong. And so I've been out uh, with my contacts in our district, you know, asking questions about uh, how do you feel about uh, the climate for business investment? And I'd say that folks haven't pulled back yet. I don't see people laying folks off. I don't see people cutting back existing plans. But they're also not leaning forward in the way that you might, as strong as the numbers have shown in our economy. And that was Thomas Barkin, the president of the Federal Reserve Bank of Richmond, with our own Michael McKee. So what's actually going on out there? We've heard from yeah, Jared Powell. Read it all, We've right? heard from a lot of Fed speakers, I feel like, ad nauseum over the past few weeks. How's the market taking it? What should people be thinking? We're going to put those questions to Dan North. He is chief economist at Euler Hermes. He's based down in Baltimore, but here with us in New York City today. Dan, great to have you back with us. Thank you very much for having me. Good to be here. All right. So just down the road from where you normally are, you see Chair Powell up on Capitol Hill, first in front of the House uh, Financial Services Committee, now in front of the Senate. What'd you take away from his uh, commentary? Well, a couple of things. One, it's it's really been, uh, to me, seemed like a remarkable shift in posture over the course of a few months. Um, in December or late last year, it was four hikes, three hikes next year, we're on. Then in February, it was, no, we're finished, and, and now it's down to, we're definitely going to cut in is July. Is it because the environment, Dan, changed so dramatically, or is it just a case that they called it wrong in December? I think there are a few things going on, Carol. I do, do think the economic data actually is is weak, really. I mean, you're, uh, the clip we just played, the guy said, oh, first quarter data was GDP was fine. It wasn't. A lot of it was due to an inventory build and, and a temporary surge or, or drop-off in net exports. You strip that out, it actually wasn't really that strong. You look at manufacturing sector, it's just about in recession. Housing's in a jumble, um, and, of course, you know, you have our inverted yield curve, which has been inverted for 50 days. Right. And that tells you that the Fed actually did hike rates too far. And We've I'm, been now, inverted for 50 days. Yep. Wow. Yes, we have. I'm looking at the 10-year, ten, three-month. Some yeah. people look at other things, but I, the New York Fed and I agree that that's the one to look at. So recession just around the corner? I think there's a strong possibility by the first quarter of 2020 we could be in a recession. And it's not the only indicator. There are other things that you would associate with the recession as well. One that's really fascinating is in the Consumer Confidence Survey. You know, they ask how consumers feel about things now and how they feel about things in the future. Overall consumer confidence, great. But those two components are diverging widely. In other words, people are much more worried about the future than now. And when that happens, really strong indicator of a recession as well. It feels wow. like, Dan, that over the past couple of days, we've also seen big questions raised about 
what data we should be looking at, how much we should be worried about inflation. We have this sort of upside down mm-hmm. world. We we're talking about it at the top of the show where you have Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez and Larry Kudlow sort of agreeing and Jay Powell essentially chiming in to say, yeah, maybe the Phillips curve, yeah, maybe we're misreading this whole thing. Sort of an upside down world we're living in now. How do you cut through that? Well, a couple things. One is, yeah, I read Chairman Powell's comment about how there's there's the, been the disconnect. It was strong, the connection between unemployment and wages and so forth 50 years ago. There's a little bit there of a disconnect. The original Phillips curve was unemployment and wages, mm. and that relationship still holds. What has broken down is the transmission of wages to consumer prices. Right. And that's broken down because of global trade and because of the Internet. Total price transparency. That's the one, yeah. Okay. Price we transparency. Knew where you were going. We knew yeah. what you meant. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's a little bit more subtle than he suggests. The wages unemployment yeah, part is still there, but that transmission of, of uh, global trade and price transparency – that's where the break is. You went to consumer sentiment, though, Dan, and we constantly hear from economists, our economists, about the strength of the consumer still. And as long as that holds up, we're okay. But as you mentioned, if you start to break down individual factors in terms of expectations, maybe it's starting to come undone. That's, that's right. And consumer confidence tends to be a little misleading because consumers can say, hey, I'm confident now, um, so I should be spending, but they don't. And that gets back to the divergence between the uh, uh, assessment of now and they say, okay, but looking at the future, I'm pretty nervous. And I think that's what's uh, one of the dampers on consumption. You know, the other damper is that tax cut that we got was great, but now we're getting a payback. We're not getting a tax cut this year. Right. We're not getting that fiscal stimulus. So, Fed, what are your expectations in terms of Fed moves? Oh, we definitely think it's virtually certain we're going to cut uh, at the end of this month. Quarter of a point or 50, like some I think quarter. Yeah. I think quarter. I think 50 is a bit of a stretch, and I think it would also indicate panic. Um, and then another 50, uh, 25 basis points in September and two more next year. I want to squeeze wow. in 20 seconds. When we get a recession, is it going to be a protracted long one or is it going to be kind of a hit and run? Oh, boy. That's a question I get asked a lot. And my colleagues from Paris say, you know, it's, a, it's different than the last one. We're a little better positioned. My concern is ever since then, uh, the last recession, too much easy money for too long. That yeah. makes me really worried. You always get worried when you, people say it's different this time. Right? That so- is the four words <laughs> that you can be certain about in economics. There's nothing else yeah. that's as certain as that. All right. Dan North, always great to catch up with you. It's like when a kid you. says it. Hey, Mom, Dad, it's yeah, different it's this different. time around. Chief economist <laughs> at Euler Hermes, based in Baltimore, here with us in New York City. You're listening to Bloomberg Business Week. Much more to come. Jason Kelly and Carol Masser here with you on Bloomberg Radio. All right, so we've been talking this story up, and with good Was reason. Is that still your love? I think so. Yeah, there so still go. your love. There you go. Cool. Um, so this took place in Chicago. I feel like this could be in the sequel to Ferris Bueller's Day Off <laughs> in some ways. Uh, a bunch of Mercedes, they go missing, and basically the car sharing service that is in charge of them is watching them get stolen virtually. Joshua Brustein has the story. It's in this week's Business Week. He's here with us in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio Mr. Brewstein, great to have you with us. Nice to be here. So how'd you get onto this story? I guess this, this grabbed some headlines when it happened, but remind us what went on. Yeah, absolutely. So um, on the day in April, it was actually tax day 
uh, a Monday morning, usually a slow time in the car sharing business. Um, the people at Car2Go, they track their fleets uh, via GPS. They actually do it from Texas, but they were watching something weird going on in Chicago. All the They have these little smart cars, which were acting normally, but then they also have high-end Mercedes. And all of those Mercedes started getting checked out at much higher rates than normal on this one Monday. Uh, they didn't quite know what was going on. And then all of them also started driving out of the area in which Car2Go operates in Chicago and congregating around a single neighborhood and, in some cases, just a couple of blocks. Just so, a coincidence, right? <laughs> big coincidence. <laughs> so tell us what the workers did. Like, or, you know, Because they obviously were like, wait, something doesn't make sense, right? Or what else started happening? Right. So at first they thought, well, clearly something's going on. This probably isn't right. Let's yeah. send someone over there to see what the situation is. And so Cardigo sends over several people. Um, just like they saw on the computer screens, there were cars that were you know, very densely packed around a couple of blocks, oftentimes parked in against one another. Um, there were some people sort of guarding the cars who were like, yeah, you're not getting these things back. So um, they sort of, uh, the Cardigo workers sort of retreated um, to figure out what was going to happen next. Um, they called the police eventually. Uh, meanwhile, at the same time online, you could see um, in Facebook uh, ads or in and around Chicago that people were advertising, hey, do you want to rent a Mercedes for a couple hours? And there was basically a secondary market for these pilfered cars that was all centered around a neighborhood or two um, in the city. Well, and what's interesting, too, is they were taking advantage of a decision ultimately that Car2Go had made and making it a little bit easier and to rent one of the cars. And this leads, I think, to the crux of this story. And mm-hmm. you did such a good job explaining this on our weekend show. We encourage you to tune into that this weekend about sort of this trade-off that ultimately sits at this nexus of disruption in a lot Convenience of Convenience versus security, right? Exactly. I think at, when this first became public, people the first reporting said it was a hack. So people thought, oh, no, someone has figured out how to compromise the software right. of these cars and make off with them. The high-tech hackers yeah. stealing a bunch of cars. Sounds very sexy. In fact, this was pretty low-tech. Um, Car2Go had, uh, they, up until this point, had been manually checking every new member who applied. So if you applied for Car2Go, a person would look at your credentials. Uh, it would take about two days before you could actually get a car. They wanted to be more convenient. Um, they you know, want to keep up with a lot of the other services out there where you can kind of do anything. You take out your phone. You ask for whatever you want, right. and you kind of get it immediately. I mean, get more users, right? Exactly. And the car sharing services you know, are really after more users. So they said, let's make this easier. And almost immediately, um, dozens of fake accounts around Chicago were set up using either phony credit cards or stolen credit cards. And then, in what seems to be a coordinated hit, all of these accounts were used to take out cars at the same time. And so, what does this tell us, just about 40 seconds left, about the state of ride-sharing? Because ride-hailing, it's gone bananas, you know, with Uber and Lyft going public, multi-multi-multi-billion-dollar valuations. But car-sharing's been a little slower to catch on. Yeah, I mean, I think that the need to go to, to convenience, even though they knew that there had been problems with this model before, show that they are really, like... How can we lower the barriers? They now say that they've dealt with most of these security issues. I guess we'll see. And it's not been just this company, but others. Enterprise, I think, had something similar. Sure, pretty much all car sharing companies have had some problems with fraud. 
but and you've just, had some consolidation there yeah. too. And so even the future of how this all plays out uh, seems to be, if not in jeopardy, at least uh, in question. It's a great, great story. Yeah. Joshua Brustein, tech writer for Business Week. His story, it's featured in the new issue of the magazine, hitting newsstands tomorrow, but you can get it at Bloomberg.com or on the Bloomberg Terminal. One of the most read stories of the day. Yep, find it in the technology section in the magazine. So shares of Delta, as Charlie mentioned, uh, they are trading higher today. Right now they're up about 1.3%. This after the airline boosted its profit forecast for 2019. They talked about blistering travel demand, lower fuel costs, and some other things, uh, letting it uh, command higher fares. Jim Corridor has followed the airline industry for a long time. He's an analyst at CFRA. He joins us on the phone in New York City. He's got a strong buy opinion on shares of Delta, and he's uh, got a price, I think, of about 59, a little bit over $59 $59 a share. Hey, Jim, good to have you here back on Bloomberg Radio. Delta doing pretty well. Just to keep you yeah, honest, thanks, the Carol. target yeah, price is uh, 75 They seem to oh. hit on all cylinders this quarter. A revenue growth much better than we expected, operating margin expansion, and better fuel costs, like you mentioned. And uh, the forecast for the second half of the year was expanded for better revenue growth than we were previously targeted. They do seem to be doing very well. And forgive me, Jason corrected me, but your price target, your 12-month price target is 75 I think when you put that out, the, the price was just below $60 a share. Correct. And so, Jim, it feels like Delta, and keep keep us honest here, keep me honest here, I mean, it feels like Delta is getting some things right that its rivals are not. What What is it? What is it about Delta that is giving them what feels like an advantage here, at least in investors' minds? Well, the number one thing is that they don't operate the 737 MAX, yeah. right? So they don't, haven't had to deal with the groundings and their schedule disruptions that came from the grounding of the plane. So they're getting, getting a benefit there. Number two is that they get more business travelers than any other U.S. airline. They do a really good job servicing premium customers, which is the reason why they keep coming back. They do actually engender some loyalty among their customers, which is very rare in the airline industry. And thirdly, they do get a little bit of a benefit on fuel costs because they do own a refinery, and they got about a 5-cent benefit in the quarter from that. You, Jason, are a loyal Delta traveler. I'm a, an Atlanta guy, yeah, you know, you are sort of locked Atlanta in guy. early to. Uh, but I, I have to Some say, people- Jim, and, and I'd be interested to see if you agree. Like, this hasn't always been a terrifically run <laughs> airline. I mean, Bastion gets a lot of credit. It feels like for for writing the ship here and making some pretty key strategic decisions. Yeah, I mean, Ed Bastion and his predecessor Richard Anderson, yeah. they focused on the number one thing that shareholders care about, which is profitability, sustained return on invested capital, and operating your business for long-term growth rather than market share gains. They were one of the first ones to actually say, hey, all this pricing competition is destructive to all of us. We need to take a step back and focus on our hub strength and areas where we can actually grow profitably. And that was the very beginning of a revolution in the airline industry here in the U.S., which has worked for everybody. Because when they got together with Northwest, that, it was not a, a slam dunk, right? I mean, that was not necessarily a marriage that everybody thought was going to go swimmingly, and yet it feels like that integration over a long time has, has gone okay. No, I mean, if you think back all those years ago, both of those companies were in bankruptcy at the time. Yeah. Northwest mechanics were actually on strike while they were operating an airline. It seemed very fraught with, with potential for, for catastrophe. And from those uh, beginnings, it came the strongest airline in the U.S., well, I know. And you've followed this industry for so long. Doesn't it just kind of blow your mind a little bit? Like go back, what, 20, 25 years. There were so many, there are other carriers around that are, you know, long, long gone. We've seen, you know, build up, we've seen consolidation and so on and so forth. I mean, how do you describe kind of the overall airline industry right now, Jim? 
Yeah, I mean, I think that the airline industry has undergone a fundamental transformation. There are way fewer competitors chasing people's uh, seats at this time. There's been a wave of bankruptcies, a wave of consolidation, and the biggest change, like I mentioned earlier, is a change in executive philosophy to try and make money rather than gain market share. And that's the beginning that started uh, 10 years of profitability in the industry. Uh, These companies are actually making money, they're paying down debt, they're fixing their balance sheets, they're buying back stock, and Delta actually has a 2.7% dividend yield, which is uh, attracting a different class of investors, people who buy and hold the stock rather than just wait for the boom and bust cycles. All right, so let's talk a little Boeing if we can, because you know you mentioned the 737 MAX issue in a positive way for Delta at the top. Certainly that is not shared by a lot of its rivals in terms of their exposure there. But talk to us about what's going on with Boeing. They've been sued by uh, Southwest customers over you know alleged collusion. Uh, What's the latest and and how do you look at this impact from a financial and an investor perspective? Yeah, if you're looking at an investment in Boeing, you have to look at the fact that they are one half of an industry that is going to see strong commercial aerospace demand for the next two decades. Certainly things are really bad right now. The plane is grounded. That's one of their biggest revenue drivers. They are being sued by not only Southwest customers, but by customers of the flights that crashed by uh, airlines that have been grounded and have seen financial disruption. So there's going to be a lot of payouts coming from Boeing. But if you look at it past this year, maybe even past next year, if you look at what is their sustainable operating margin, they have a huge advantage. They have a wide moat. There's no other potential entrance into the industry uh, for the next 10 years. They're going to be fine over the long run. Right. It's like where else are people going to go? It's Airbus or it's Boeing for the most part, right? Right, and there's been reports that Airbus now has taken the lead in market share. They may have more than 50%, but Airbus can't expand its its production facilities to take on much more than they currently do. So it's going to be 51%, 49% Boeing or Airbus over the next 10 years, and they're both going to do fine. So when you look at the whole airline space, I mean, is everybody, you know, on the same – like I look at American. They're only up about 3% this year. Delta is up, I think, around 20%. So obviously all airlines not the same. And as you said, Delta has been very good going after those higher margin uh, business customers. Um, Who's struggling? Who's not? Yeah, Delta has been firing on all cylinders, like we already mentioned, but American has been hurt by uh, a slowdown among its mechanics who are looking for a new contract. Uh, they actually have uh, an injunction against them to make sure that they don't slow down on their work, but they still are. There's been a lot of cancellation and flight delays as a result of that. So American has been lagging. But yesterday they did announce that their unit revenues were going to be better than we expected. So we do think that the overall demand environment is still strong for America. We do have a buy on that stock. Um, Southwest had had the same issues earlier in the year with their mechanics. They resolved those issues, but they do have a lot of 737 maxes, so their schedule has been disrupted. And do you get a sense yet, Jim, about what the sort of summer travel scene is going to look like for the big airlines? You optimistic, pessimistic, neutral as to how that plays out over the next couple months? I'm actually very optimistic. Uh, Delta actually reported on its conference call that it had its highest revenues of its history uh, on July 7th, which is starting the third quarter. Um, And it's seen like five of their ten highest revenue days over the past week and a half or two weeks. Demand is strong. Their outlook for the third quarter is very strong. And yet we haven't seen the kind of disruptions at the airport that we had seen years ago due to air traffic control and due to there being too many, not enough slots chasing too many planes. So, you know, so far it does seem that, you know, things are going smoothly. Delta has had a lot of days without canceling a flight. They're running a pretty good on-time network. uh, And I expect overall 
summer travel to be pretty pretty decent, although it's never a pleasant experience, right? Let's be frank. Yeah, yeah. No, I know. As I look forward to vacation later in the summer, I'm, I am anticipating just whew, those airports and not the most fun place to be. Jim Corridor, equity analyst over at CFRA Research, as Carol said, he's been following this industry for quite some time and is a bull in Delta and sounds like with good reason as he breaks it down. Yeah, stock's up 20% this year. It's up about 1.1% as we speak, just over $60 a share. And I think about any time we've been traveling, certainly for work, um, I feel like the airports are packed. Yeah, jammed. We can work it out. We can work it out. We are talking about workers of the world, the new workers of the world, and they are going through an industrial revolution of sorts, a great convulsion, if you will, as some have described it. So let's get into it. It is the global cover story of the magazine this week. Wahini Vara wrote it. She joins us on the phone along with our own Joel Weber, Bloomberg Business Week editor. He's in our Bloomberg Interactive Broker Studio in New York. Wahini, so glad that uh, we're getting a second time to talk with you about this. It'll be in our weekend show, both on Bloomberg Radio and Bloomberg TV. But tell us about what you set out to do. Sure. So I, um, about a year ago, I learned that I would be traveling and teaching on the Semester at Sea Study Abroad program, which takes college students on a ship around the world. And as I was preparing to do that, I, I happened to be reading some, some really good books of oral histories and thinking about that as a form. And it occurred to me that it would be really cool if I could use this opportunity to, to do some reporting about a topic that I've, I've thought and written a lot about, which is this sort of intersection of labor and globalization and technology. Of course, it's a really difficult thing to do by oneself, right, if you're an English-speaking American traveling to places all over the world. And so that was the beginning of it. Right. Um, the, the next step was um, was Business Week and my editor there, Jeremy Keen, getting really excited excited about the project, I think, and sort of becoming a, a partner with me in, in conceiving of it. Um, I ended up working with a lot of colleagues, a lot of local colleagues in each of these countries who spoke the local language, and many of them were journalists who, who knew how to sort of navigate the local landscapes. And in each of the countries, um, in Europe, Africa, Asia, South America, and North America, uh, we, we, we interviewed a bunch of people and ultimately published 10, or, 10 right. interviews. And forgive me, I just want to jump in because we have a headline crossing the Bloomberg terminal. There were some expectations that President Trump was going to take an executive action today on the 2020 uh, census question uh, involving citizenship. We do have a headline crossing that the president is dropping the effort to add that citizenship question to the census. But we also get another headline from an official within the administration saying that uh, there will be an action by the president to seek citizenship data outside of the census. So I just wanted to bring it because this has been a big story that we've all been following. He's going to use the Commerce Department in some way, shape, or form to do that. So, Joel Weber, come on in here, because from your perspective, uh, how does this story manifest into the magazine? Well, what we really wanted to do, and Wahini did this incredibly well, was to let the people that we had found speak in their own words. And obviously, there was a challenge to that being a language barrier, so translation was really important. But that's the magic that I think really comes through in her story is as you kind of read these people's words and the trials that they've gone through, you you really get a sense of of the human experience from them. And that was, I think, going back to Wainis and like the body of work that she had sort of been a, been kind of wading through and helped bring this to life. It was really about the people and the human experience right 
now. And that right now part is really important because when we talk about these themes every day, the automation, the migration, the xenophobia that is really manifesting itself in the world today. And to me, these workers are they they are almost the cogs of the global economy and they're basically invisible. And I think what Wahini did was put a spotlight on them and and celebrate them by letting them have a voice in a national publication, international publication like this. So that, that to me was sort of the, the, the North star. Um, she did an amazing job. At it, and I think when you kind of take them as a whole, the thing that really stood out to me, and this was a word that we talked about a lot, um, uh, is this idea of striving. Uh, it's really, a lot of these people are, they're, there, it's not a job that you or I would definitely seek out to do, and yet for them, it they've they've basically identified an opportunity and they're pursuing it. And some of that is um, something that they have to do at necessity, and and for others of them, they become very good at a skill and and they're making it work and they're hustling. Right, and an opportunity to really provide for themselves and their families. Uh, Wahini, just have about a minute left here. You know, what's your takeaway from doing this? Um, you know, uh, this reporting and and writing about these people and talking to these people and letting them tell their own stories. Well, related to what Joel was was saying, and I appreciate hearing that from you, Joel. Uh, it was it was really eye opening for me to, to to hear these people's stories in their in their own words. Uh, I think often when we hear about people whose um, whose voices aren't often heard, who are you know maybe in, in the lower rungs of the global economy, um, like you sort of like you feel sorry for people. Um, it, it it feels as though they lack agency. And what what struck me most about these people's stories is that, as Joel said, they all kind of. Um, they all are, are very ambitious and very in, intelligent, the people mm-hmm. I spoke with, and, and really sort of are using all the resources they have at their disposal, right. which in some cases are not many, yeah. uh, to, to make it work and, 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 and you know, in, in, in their way in each of their professions to, yeah. to be successful at it. It's a really, really compelling read, and congratulations on it. Wahini Vara is the author of this this week's Bloomberg Business Week cover story, Workers of the World on Getting By in an Era of Wrenching Change. Our thanks, too, to Joel Weber, editor of Bloomberg Business Week. He was here with us in New York City. I'm driving in my car. I turn on the radio. How about you let me drive? Oh, no, 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 no. Who's going to drive you home? Honey, please, I'll do the driving. Drive on. Excuse me, I want to drive. Just drive, baby. It's the question that drives us. This is the drive to the close. That funky music will drive us till the dawn. On Bloomberg Radio. It is time for the drive to the close. Michael Sheldon is back with us, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group. Michael joining us once again on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Michael, good to have you back with us. Uh, A lot for us to talk about. And I... You know, I was kind of checking my notes. When you were here with us, I think back in early April, you reminded us, I think it was Strategus Research, they had done some work, and how the S&P 500 has not declined in the 12 months following midterm elections, and that since 1948, there has not been a recession that started.
started in the year three of the election cycle. Do you still feel that? Do you still think that's something worth invest, you know, investors kind of minding in this environment? You know, there, those are a couple of statistics which, as an investor, you just want to sort of store in the back of your mind. And uh, they're not really fundamental factors. I mean, the most important thing when you look at the markets is you want to look at things like sales, profits, GDP, Fed policy. But it's certainly interesting to have some of those statistics in the back of your mind. And uh, the first point you brought up about the markets responding well in the pre-election year It sort of makes sense intuitively if you think about it, because the president is uh, about to face re-election and he wants to take steps that he can to promote economic growth and uh, hopefully get re-elected. So it'll be interesting to see what happens next year. Obviously, the Fed's, uh, or excuse me, Donald Trump and the is is we have trade problems right now, and it'll be interesting. We still think that'll get resolved, but that's uh, one of those big issues out there we're still monitoring. Sounds like you had a little bit of a Freudian slip there, Michael, when you mentioned the Fed, because we can't stop talking about it. Uh, Carol, you should know, has dubbed this period <laughs> that we're in Powell Palooza because there's he's inescapable, uh, as are the rest of the Fed speakers. But it does seem like they are trying to get a message out. A, is it working? And, and what's the message that you are hearing at this point? Because it, it, it has been a little bit hard to discern, especially if we, if we think back over the past few months. Yeah, I think the Fed has sort of painted itself into a difficult corner right now. Um, taking a step back as we headed into 2019, there were a number of concerns that we had. Uh, Fed tightening was right at the top of the list. If you look at the last uh, Federal Reserve rates, rate tightening cycles, unfortunately, when the Fed raised rates, 75% of the time, that's led to an economic downturn. So heading into the uh, to 2019, we were concerned that the Fed would over-tighten and that, that would lead to an economic downturn. However, it's important that as we went through the first several months of the year, the Federal Reserve changed policy course dramatically, and they sort of hit the pause button. So now, um, you know, the Federal Reserve is supposed to have a dual mandate of, of moderate inflation and stable inflation and full employment, and they're not supposed to be influenced by the uh, by the president. So uh, this year, you could kind of throw that out the window. Donald Trump has basically uh, put out several tweets, actually calling for Powell to resign, but he's really calling for the Fed to lower rates. And he wants the Fed to be more in line with the European central banks, which are promoting economic growth. Right now, it seems that the Fed is more likely to lower rates by a quarter point at the upcoming meeting. The, the markets, and more importantly, the Fed doesn't typically disappoint the markets within about 30 days of its meeting, at least historically. So right now, we're looking at a quarter point rate hike, which is fairly likely for the upcoming meeting. And beyond that, it's Wait, did you say rate market. hike? A uh, rate cut, excuse me. Oh, okay. Okay. Sorry. I just want to make sure you're <laughs> right. <laughs> Well, uh, and beyond that, it gets a little murky. And I do wonder about the relationship. There was something, and I was just looking for the story. I can't remember if it was on Bloomberg Daybreak, um, our feed that we put out every morning, or another story that I read. But the importance of kind of the role of the U.S. Central Bank globally in keeping rates low and what that does to kind of help. Like they've got to think as kind of a, a little bit of a global central banker because of the impact of maybe higher rates here in the U.S. versus what that might do to some of the other nations around the world? Well, the world is definitely interconnected. And let me give you a couple of examples. One is through interest rates. We're seeing incredibly low interest rates overseas right now. And it's hard to believe, but there's more than $12 trillion in negative yielding interest rates overseas in Europe. 
Austria, for example, just issued a 100-year bond with a yield of 1.2 percent. And uh, you just uh, you can't make this stuff up. This is actually true. So when yields are so low overseas, that's sort of dragging our yields down. And that's one of the reasons that our yields have come down from about 3.25% a few months ago down to just below 2% recently. Now they're, they've popped up about above 2% recently. Another issue sort of talking about Fed policy and how that affects the global, global markets is through the dollar. The dollar is a really important barometer and indicator to watch. If the Fed were to tighten or let me say, if the Fed were to keep monetary policy too tight versus banks overseas, versus countries overseas, that could lead to strength in the dollar. And Trump doesn't actually want that to happen. He's actually vocally said that he'd like to see a lower dollar. And that's also on the margin, even though the Fed is supposed to be immune to political pressure, that may be sort of influencing them to maybe lower rates uh, a, little, a little bit. And so, you know, we had an earlier guest who said recession coming, maybe Dan early North. 2020, Dan North, a big economist. Uh, what do you think about the chances of a recession in 2020 at some point, maybe even uh, first half of the year? Well, I think it's important that the economic recovery has now lasted for 121 months, and that's the longest uh, in modern American history. And over the past 10 years or so during the current economic expansion, uh, there have been plenty of bumps along the road where many investors thought, well, now, we're, now it's time to head for the exits. Um, so the economy overall has been very resilient. I think that's an important point. The second thing to mention is we look at a number of different indicators. You could look at jobless claims, which are at the lowest since about 1969, the yield curve, uh, the Fed senior loan survey. Um, most leading economic indicators don't point to a recession right now, they point to a slowdown or more moderate growth compared to 2018, for example. So we don't see a recession ahead. Obviously, things can change. We're still of the opinion that um, that somehow China and the United States will be able to resolve their differences. And if that can happen, that can provide a boost for consumer and business confidence, which I think would help promote stronger economic growth. So there are a few different pieces of the puzzle that need to come together. But at least this, at this point, we think the odds of a, a recession over the next few quarters uh, so far remain a low probability event. All right. So just 20 seconds. What, what's your advice to investors then? Well, for investors, it's really important to have the right asset allocation to think about investing over the long term. And we think it's also important to remain diversified. All right. Going to leave it on that note. Hey, Michael, thank you. Michael Sheldon, Executive Director, Chief Investment Officer at RDM Financial Group, uh, on the phone from Westport, Connecticut. Thanks for listening to Bloomberg Business Week. You can subscribe to the podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Bloomberg.com. You can also listen to our radio show every weekday at 2 p.m. Eastern, only on Bloomberg Radio.